not already there, uh, open up to Psalm chapter 1, and I've got to get there myself. So, uh, Psalm 1, let me read this for us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. The original says, not so the wicked but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it is very clear from this psalm that if we are to enjoy your blessing, it will come in delighting in your word. And I know we come here this morning with many thoughts in our minds, many cares that we are carrying, many burdens, but I pray that you would allow us the opportunity this morning to delight in your word, to soak in it, that it might transform us and that it might Cause us to treasure you and to treasure the salvation that we have through your son, Jesus, more. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, in one sense, I think that every sermon that is faithful to expound the scriptures, that is faithful to, to teach the scriptures, could be rightly entitled, The Key to Everlasting Joy. Or it could be entitled, The Key to God's Blessing. Um, Because every part of Scripture, if we take it in, and we take it as God's life-giving word, then we are admitting that what we find there is eternal joy and life. When we internalize God's word, we enjoy his blessing. Just a very simple concept for us in this message this morning. When we internalize God's word, we enjoy his blessings. God's word is life. Jesus says that he spoke only the commandment that the Father gave him, and that commandment is, John 12, 50, that commandment is eternal life. Whenever God breathes into something, you think of God breathing into the nostrils of Adam, You think of God's breathed out word. Whenever God breathes into something, what happens is it comes to life. In 1 Peter 1.23, we read that as followers of Christ, we have been born, we have been made alive, we've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades all around us, everything is decaying and dying, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So with all this, we can conclude as a very certain biblical principle for us this morning, that when we internalize God's word, we are going to enjoy his blessing. 
Now you take all that in and you think about that statement for just a moment. You think about all the ways that God's word speaks of the necessity of filling up with God's word. If this is true, if you believe that this is true, and if it is a certain fact that as we are about to read, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the man who meditates on his law day and night. Then shouldn't we conclude that internalizing God's word must be the single highest priority of our lives? That's what I want us to see this morning. And I want us to ask ourselves, do our lives right now reflect this priority? Do they reflect this desire? So as we journey through some of the selected psalms this summer, and I'm really excited to get to do this. Many churches take kind of a season in the summer, uh, and it seems to fit really well with the, the rhythm of the seasons and the rhythm of the church to just journey through some psalms and to sit there and to soak in them and to ruminate on them. As we, as we journey through these selected psalms this summer, I want us to understand a few things up front about the psalms to get kind of a sense of the, the nature of this book as a whole. And the first thing I want us to understand is that these songs were composed in order that we would internalize them. They were composed in order that we would, we would get them into the deepest parts, not merely to read them, not merely to rotely memorize them, not merely to study them, but to help get the truths of God into the deepest places of our inward being. That's why they were written in the first place. Amen. So um, just so you get a better sense of this, better understanding of this, uh, raise your hand if you would need me to hand you a lyric sheet right now if I were to ask you to sing the ABCs. No one. How about if I ask you to sing Happy Birthday? How many of you would need the lyrics to Happy Birthday? How about the national anthem? See, now this gets a little embarrassing because yeah. <laughs> You're bold if you admit, because I know not everybody has the national anthem completely down. But like those types of songs that are, are really a part of the fabric of our being, the devoted Israelites would have had much of this hymnal, this songbook, actually embedded on their hearts. So because these are meant to be songs that are committed to the heart, I want to encourage you as we move through these different psalms, so we're looking at Psalm 1 today, uh, in the week following or the week leading up to, I want you to think about working on getting these stuck in your hearts and to, to work on getting these stuck on your lips. I want you to think of these as sticky psalms. Uh, that's a word we can use together as a church. That'll be our little inside uh, language. These are sticky psalms. So come to these psalms each week with an expectation to respond to them by meditating on them, by learning them, by getting them down, by praying them back to God, and yes, maybe even by singing them back to God. In fact, we gave you some help this morning by singing Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I long for these psalms to become a, a, a part of the very fabric of our being, uh, our individual being, but also our identity, as a church. So you think about a psalm like this, the blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Say to yourself, God, I want to be someone who delights in the law of the Lord. 
Center Baptist Church, we want to be known as a church where people look at us, oh, that's the church that is just crazy about God's word. They're kind of fanatical about it. Well, a little more about the Psalms. The Psalms have been referred to as the anatomy of all parts of the soul. And 1,700 years ago, our brother, pastor, theologian, Athanasius, said this about the Psalms. He said, whatever your particular need or trouble, whatever need or trouble you have right now, from this same book, you can find a form of words to fit it. You can find a form of words in here to describe what you are experiencing so that you not merely hear it and then pass on, you just move along, but that you learn the way to remedy your ill. Come to the Psalms expecting to find their remedies to whatever ills you have on your mind and heart today. So we come to Psalm 1, right? The, the, the beginning of all the Psalms, very intentionally placed. This is not some randomly ordered songbook. Very intentionally placed at the beginning of the Psalms because Psalm 1 is going to set the tone for how we read all of the other Psalms. And really, it's going to set the tone for how we read all of Scripture from this point on. If the Psalms as a whole are songs which speak to every season of the soul, then Psalm 1 is really the song of songs. It's the song that carries us through every season of the soul. It is our firm foundation psalm. It's often called the gateway psalm or the preface psalm or the foundation psalm. So in this psalm, Here's what David is doing. Basically, David is going to lay out for us right from the get-go two options for the reader. He's going to draw very hard and very clear lines. There is really no in-between when you're done reading this psalm. There are two ways to live. Think about this psalm as two ways to live. Way number one, if we delight in and meditate on God's word, then we will experience the blessing of a life of stability, of fruitfulness, and ultimately, through our relationship with the Creator, eternal life. That's way number one, those who delight in the Lord. But then there's way number two, if we neglect or if we reject God's instruction. Here's what is laid out for us. We will instead wither, we will be blown away like chaff in the wind, and apart from the source of all life and having a relationship with him, we will ultimately perish. So the song begins. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. One other thing that is very unique about the Psalms is that you see they, they're laid out a little bit different than the rest of the parts of Scripture because they are poetry. They're poetry, and that's because they were composed for singing. So they have rhythm, and they have meter, and they have metaphorical language, and they have imagery, and all those other terms you might have forgotten from your 10th grade English class. But the writer here, I want you to see, is not just teaching us through the words themselves. He's actually teaching us as well through the way that he arranges and composes and brings the words together. This purposeful poetic structure. And we see this on display very clearly in the first two verses. David is going to give a warning with very intentionally slow, 
lumbering, poetic language in order to paint a picture of the subtle yet destructive progression or digression that comes when we turn away from God's word. So at first you have this picture uh, of the man who, who, who maybe he sets out to, to do the will of the Lord and, and he has a respect for God, but his ear is being pulled over to listen to the counsel of the wicked. He walks in the counsel of the wicked. And the wicked here, I know it's easy to think wicked, well, that's really harsh, but all he means by wicked is the opposite of godly. There's two ways to live, godly and wicked, godly and ungodly. So he, he begins to listen and to, and to invite and entertain more of that counsel until at one point he decides that he likes it enough that he is going to stand in the way of sinners. And I don't mean when he says stand in the way, he doesn't mean get in the way, block here. He means stand as a sinner himself, to stand in the place of sinners. And then after standing a little bit in uh, that, that sinful culture and kind of immersing himself in it, uh, he's no longer listening to the word of God, right? He's invited the counsel of the wicked into his life. Now, not only is he just standing there as a sinner, but at last he begins to sit in the seat of scoffers and to curse and to blaspheme and to pull others astray to go on that path with him. So this digression from first kind of entertaining godly counsel, no longer listening to the word of God, till eventually you make a home with sinners, till eventually you become a hardened and bold scoffer of God. I would say rarely does someone who has been exposed to the goodness of God's word ever just set out overnight to say, you know what, I think today I'm going to become a hardened sinner and just curse God. I think the evil one is far more crafty, is far more subtle than that. One of the things today that has become really popular that the media keeps shelling out to the church is these deconversion stories. Do you know what I'm talking about by deconversion stories? So a famous musician or a famous, a well-known pastor uh, makes a post on, on Twitter or a post on Facebook. Uh, I've decided after several years of contemplating that I no longer believe in God and here's all the reasons why and he can't answer these types of questions. And the, community, the church community is shocked and grieved, rightly, we're grieved over these things because we say, that was the pastor who wrote that book that changed my life. Or that was the guy that sang that song and I was at the concert and God converted me through that message. And we don't understand it. And we say, how could this have happened? Well, I can tell you it did not happen overnight. It started to happen when that person turned their ear away from the word of God began to entertain and to invite the counsel of the wicked. And that should serve as a huge warning for us today. That to leave God's word untouched, that to leave God's word unopened, that to leave God's word unread, and especially to leave God's word uninternalized, we are opening ourselves up to the seductive enticement of the wicked. Nobody sets out to be wicked, I don't think. But now here comes the contrast. So remember, the poetic language here, kind of this slow, lumbering digression from bad to worst. 
And then the psalmist comes in with, but who is the blessed man? The blessed man is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. One single answer to this problem. It's the one who delights in the Lord. That is the blessed man. What is the single thing that separates the godly from the ungodly? Where is the blessing for all of life found? It's found in delighting in God. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And here I want to slow things way down for us and really zero in on this line here. The one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the man whose delight is on the law of the Lord. As I was working on this sermon, I was determined that I was going to get through the entire psalm, but I decided because we were going to stop here for a little while that we will extend that to next week and we will cover verses 3 through 6 next week. But that word blessed, I wanted to take a little journey and a little survey through the Bible to understand who are the types of people that the Bible says, that God says, are blessed. We all, we all want to be blessed, right? We all want to be happy. We all want to have joy forever. Who are these people? Well, consider some of these things the Bible tells us. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in God. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the one who dwells in your house. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord. And of course, the Beatitudes in Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now just compare that for a second to maybe what you have in your mind from the way that the term is used today. And it's a very popular term, uh, particularly with social media, the hashtag blessed. Now, whenever I think of hashtag blessed, I'm typically thinking of material blessings. Somebody standing in front of a new car or a new home. And just think of the way that the Bible kind of calibrates that understanding of blessing. Not about all the great material things that we get, but really this single idea that blessing is found in having a relationship with the Creator. Blessing is found in the one who's delighting in God with all their being and delighting in every word, hanging on every word that he says. That's the way I think the Bible presents Blessed people. Where is the key to blessing found? And this psalm certainly drives that point home. But now let's look at that word delight. What does it mean to delight? And this is a word that we find over and over again all throughout the psalms. And and this idea of to delight or to desire, particularly if you go to Psalm 119, it's just over and over and over again. What does it mean? How do I know if I'm delighting in the law of the Lord? Well, I thought of some ways that I can understand how I delight, where my delight is. And over these past five months, uh, some of you will know that I have absolutely had the pleasure, the, the privilege of being able to delight in my newborn son, Daniel. I've been telling people that Daniel is kind of like, he's like a love magnet 
Uh, or he's like a delight magnet because when you, when you come into his presence, this is sounding a little, a little strange here, but when you come into his presence, you can't help it. He pulls your affections, at least he pulls our affections in towards him without, it, without even doing anything. We can just be sitting at home on the couch. He's laying on his blanket doing his thing and he makes a little, ooh, ah. And I turn over and I'm just like, what do he do? What do he do? And I look at Eric and I'm like, that was hilarious. That was awesome. Did you see what he just did? I delight in Daniel. And I think what, what that's telling me is this. I think what it tells me is that there is a recognition of Daniel's value when I look at him. There's a recognition of his value, which is revealing by contrast that everything else around him in that moment is of far lesser value. You think of the TV, you think of the iPhone, you think of uh, the food in your refrigerator. All these things captivate us, right, at some point. But when you look at Daniel, if you're his father, none of that matters in that moment because we recognize his value is far superior. And I think that's a good way to kind of test ourselves, to examine ourselves. What are we delighting in most? So I want to, us to do a delight test for a moment this morning. I want you to think about the most recent thing that you have been delighting in. And I mean thing here, we're just gonna talk about things, objects, uh, whether that was a car, whether that was a home that you were coveting, maybe some new piece of technology, uh, maybe for some of you men it was a new tool, and no offense to those women who like new tools as well. Maybe it was a stimulus check how many of you were delighting in receiving that piece of paper in the mail or electronically in your account? But think about this, okay? The last thing you delighted in like that. How much time did you invest meditating on that thing? And when I mean meditating, all I simply mean is how much time did you spend thinking about that thing? Did you lay in bed at night and think about it or wonder when you were going to get it? Was it on your mind when you awoke? How much time did, you, did that consume, did that object consume? Now let's fast forward to a moment in our lives that all of us are going to face one day, barring the Lord's return. Let's fast forward to that moment that we, when we are on our deathbeds. You're in the last moments of your life, and, and life has really all of a sudden gone from being incredibly complex to being very, very simple. You've got two options laying before you. Either you are joyfully hoping to see Jesus and spend an eternity with him, or you are fearfully wondering what is going to happen to your life next. Think about in this moment, what space in your mind are those former delights, those former objects, those former stimulus checks, pieces of technology, cars and homes, what space are those things in that moment going to occupy in your minds? Do you think that all those things, all that stuff, the many pursuits of your life after those former delights are still going to shine as bright in that moment? Well, if in that moment, those former delights are going to seem as just chaff blown about by the wind, 
And what does that tell you about their worthiness of your delight today? What does that tell you about their worthiness of your delight today? Would you agree with me that whatever is most worthy of your delight is what you should be devoting your life to right now? Would you agree with that? And you don't have to answer that, but what I'm saying is we all get this at one level, yet we find our lives are a little bit of out of balance with what we believe there. The things that we should give the greatest measure of our time to, the greatest force of our emotions to, the greatest portion of our words to, the greatest attention of our minds to, the greatest amount of our content that we post on social media to. I think Psalm 1 is God broadcasting for us on a giant billboard along the highway in big, bold letters. The single worthiest object of your delight should be me. I mean, me. (laughs) God. I, God, am the single worthiest object of your delight. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. See, God created us. He created us for this specific purpose that we would find everlasting joy by delighting in him, that we would glorify him and enjoy him forever. And the reason we don't devote more of our time to God's word, I think, is because lesser treasures and lesser pleasures have instead captured our delight. David delighted in God's law because he could see God for who he truly was as the sole author of his salvation, the sole source of spiritual life for him. And you think about David and his many woes. What happened to David? There was a time where he forgot. He forgot about how worthy God was of all his delight. And he gave himself over to lesser pleasures and the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. And you just picture that digression, right? No longer listening to the counsel of God's word, committing the sin, and then scoffing at God. This was the psalmist here who's writing this psalm. He forgot it too. That should give us great warning. But when he came to a place of repentance, and you can find this in Psalm 51, when he came to a place of repentance, what did he pray? He said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He was essentially saying, God, I need a change of my delight. I need my delight in you restored. That's where it begins. First of all, all of you must know that you are never going to delight in anything that is in this book if you do not first believe that the author of this book is your Savior. Though David did not live to see the way in which God was truly going to deal with his sins and forgive him of his sins by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross to take them from us, to take that penalty off of us, though David would not see it, he still was clinging to God's promise of forgiveness. He knew that God would forgive. He trusted in him for forgiveness. And today, as Christians, we can only delight, we will only ever delight in God's word if we first recognize that we have been rescued from the wickedness of our own sin by Christ taking our sins upon himself. 
The Bible tells us in Christ that he has given us a new heart. So there is a type of heart. There's a heart of, of stone that does not delight in this, that cannot. In fact, it says it's hostile to God in Romans 8. But he has given us a new heart, a heart of flesh that is able to delight in him. And he has put his spirit within us. He has put his spirit within us, which awakens us to delight in the treasure of his word. So what does it look like to delight in God's law? This is where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. First of all, when you see the word law, and I've been kind of using that synonymous with God's word, I know that probably strikes you as, a, as an odd statement. Delight in his law. David's like delighting in this list of rules. Well, the first thing I want you to know is when you see the law, the word law there in the Old Testament, often what David is referring to is God's Torah. You may have heard that Torah, uh, often used for the first five books of the Bible. Torah is, it, it means teaching. It means instruction. It's so much more than simply a list of rules. Torah is, is, is more of this full body of God's instruction, his teaching, his commandments, his gracious revelation, his, his telling us of his heart and his character. David says of God's words in Psalm 19, they are sweeter than honey and more to be desired, more to be delighted in than gold. But here's the problem for all of us. And I think this is the tension that we're probably feeling right now with a sermon like this. We agree with all the statements, but our hearts aren't quite there. We find it sometimes very hard to get to this place because I think we have cluttered our lives with so many substitute treasures. We've allowed so many other things to displace and crowd out God's word. If we would give ourselves over to the practice of immersing, immersing ourselves in this and internalizing this, I think we would be more likely to come to see it for the treasure that it truly is. But instead, we practice social distancing from God's word. Or instead, we relegate it to the one hour on Sunday morning where we hear it and forget about it and entertain the counsel of the wicked throughout the rest of the week. And when you do that, it is always going to feel really, really hard to see its worth for your life and to see its relevance for your life. There are so many people today that are talking about, I want relevant Bible teaching. And part of me wants to agree, but part of me wants to laugh because how much more relevant can you get than the one who created you telling what is true for your life? But I think the reason why it feels so irrelevant to us is because that's not how we spend the rest of our week. And so when we come here on Sunday morning and we hear about these things, we say, that's not relevant to everything I do. Of course it's not relevant because you haven't been delighting in God the rest of the week. So a preacher like me or a preacher like Troy gets up here, which Troy, thank you for preaching the word faithfully and proclaiming it gets up here Sunday after Sunday, and here's our goal, here's our job, here's the task we're faced with. We're faced with saying, church, look at this. Isn't this amazing? Doesn't this captivate your soul? Aren't your affections just drawn in by it? And in that moment, some of you are saying yes and amen. Others are saying, well, I, I kind of want it to, but I don't feel like I'm quite there yet. 
And others find yourselves really excited, but then on Monday morning when the first task of work hits, you're thinking, that's the farthest thing on my mind. You think, when I look at God's word, I just don't get excited like I know that I should. Sometimes it even feels like a heavy lift or a tiring chore just to do my daily devotional or my Bible reading, if we're doing a daily Bible reading at all. Jonathan Edwards is very helpful to us here, I think. He gives us the analogy of honey. And I think maybe in his day, in the 1700s, honey was probably a more special treat than we hold today in our uh, indulgent culture. But he, he, he gives this, this uh, analogy of honey. If you were born without the ability to taste honey, you couldn't taste it. So all you could do is take my word for it. As I pointed to it on your shelf and I said, that is the sweetest thing you will ever taste. That is the most enjoyable, and you can fill in whatever dessert you want to here. That is the most enjoyable thing you will ever taste. You're only ever going to know that at this kind of intellectual level. You're going to know it secondhand. You're going to know it from a distance. And really, in the end, I could just as easily come along and tell you that some bitter herb was just as good, and you might believe it, and that would be the extent of your knowledge. Well, he says it works the same with God's word. God's word, instead of being mere lifeless words on a page that we look at from afar, must be experienced as delightful. How do we experience it? By receiving it and ingesting it and by God transforming our wills by it and seeing that prove true over and over again in our lives. David says in Psalm 34, we just sang, oh, taste. I love this about the scriptures. I love this about the Psalms. Not read your Bible. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Here he says in verse 3 that on his law, this blessed man is going to meditate day and night. That, just, that doesn't just mean morning and evening. That means constantly. And everything he does, the word is just infused in him and welling up out of him. He's meditating on it day and night. This, this sense of repetitive pondering or even muttering over and over again to oneself. We use that phrase sometimes. I just can't get that song out of my head. And so we sing it over and over again, and, and maybe we get a little annoyed with it. But this is like that song you can't get out of your head, only you don't want to because it keeps getting better and better and better to the taste the more that you meditate on it. Think about what this word, that what, what this statement would have meant to a people that existed prior to the printing press, prior to owning their own personal copies of God's word. Clearly, something is meant here much more than just a morning opening and an evening opening of a personal copy of God's word because they didn't have it. Many of these Israelites may have had this 150 of these embedded upon their hearts, which makes it a lot easier to meditate on day and night if it's inside you like that. Biblical meditation is a, it's a pondering, it's a chewing on, it's a storing up of the words of God in your heart. It's allowing the thoughts of God to displace all of those thoughts that have, creeped, have crept into your head. 
David says, happy is the one, blessed is the one who does this, who fills his day, who fills his life, who fills his life with the thoughts of God. So what I want to do in our last few moments together is I just want to give you, as by way of application, four ways to think more holistically about meditating on God's word. Because really, this is the key to blessing. This is where blessing is found. It's the song that's going to carry you through every season of life. So I want to help you here by providing for us at least four, and there could be several more. Because I think when we think of meditation, we think we just have to sit down, read it, and say it over and over again. And I can, I can give you a little help there. So if you want to write these four down to remember, I wrote them in a way that rhymes. Memorize, pray, converse, obey. Memorize, pray, converse, excuse me, obey. The first one, memorize scripture. Now I've heard people say, why do we need to memorize scripture in the age of Google? Because I can just look up um, on Google if I need to recall something. Well, that's a complete misunderstanding of what it means to have the word internalized in you, because in that moment of fear, in that moment of worry, I guarantee you, you're not going to go clicking on Google for the answer. You're going to need it right there beside you. Memorize scripture. There is no better way to chew upon, to devour, to meditate upon, to ponder the word of God than if it is in you. So memorize Psalm 1. I realize you're like, whoa, I thought, you know, memorize one verse, but you just said memorize Psalm, memorize Psalm 1. Or at least memorize part of it. Speak it to your family on your way home so that you get some of it into your heart. Write it down and post it to your refrigerator. Sometimes Erica takes those washable paint window, paint marker things, and she writes psalms on our windows so we can look at them and get them into our heads and get them into our hearts. Another way to memorize scripture is to listen to biblically rich music. Notice I didn't say Christian music, because there's a lot of stuff out there that is Christian music that may be okay, but I, I'm talking about the type of music that is teaching you the scriptures. Chris is very careful here to pick out songs that teach, I don't know if you've noticed that, that tell the story of scripture, and in the case this morning, to sing the scripture, Psalm 34. We sang it this morning, and just say it out loud with me right now. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, how many of you think that you will still have that with you next Sunday? Come on, raise your hand. Let's say it one more time. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, when you say that, does that do something to you? Did you notice it's not just repeating a phrase? That's actually doing a work on your heart to say that back. When I say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, I can recall to mind all the ways that God is good, and I can taste them, and I can remember ways that he has been faithful. So sing the scriptures together. Listen to biblically rich music, but by all means, do what you have to do to get this word into your hearts. Second, pray the scripture. This is something that has been, I almost want to say, revolutionary to me. <laughs> uh, when I kind of 
first started or learned to pray the scriptures. And a really good recommendation for a book, it's called Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. Very simple, just kind of gives you guidelines on how you can incorporate this into your own prayer life. Prayer life. But we could, we could do this but with Psalm 1, and we could say, God, I want to delight in your law. Please cause me to be someone who meditates on it day and night. Or for those of you that have children, one of the things you can do when you pray with your children at night, sometimes we're like, what do we pray for? And it ends up kind of being the same repetitive phrases over and over again. Pick a phrase from the psalm, put your hand on their head as a blessing, and say, Father, make my son be like a tree that is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season that prospers in everything he does, that his, his leaf never withers. Keep him far from the counsel of the wicked. Praying back the Psalms to God gets it into your hearts. The next one, converse. What I mean by that is speak scripture to others. I guarantee you the things that you delight in most, you are going to talk about the most. It's too bad Josh isn't here because I was going to pick on him. He likes to talk about the Kansas City Chiefs. That's because he delights in watching the Kansas City Chiefs. And they haven't always been delight worthy, but this year they proved themselves very delight worthy. And he would be the first one to wanna to share that news with you about how they won the Super Bowl. Well, it goes the same way with God's Word. And whenever you read God's Word, as soon as something captures your heart, let one of your next thoughts be, who is someone else in the church that I can share this with to bless them? So maybe it's a text. And, and here's where I could speak very, commend Josh very well as well. We've had this, this group uh, text thing going with a few of the men uh, in the church, and Josh has been texting us every morning words of scripture, and other people have been chipping in with comments and providing their own scriptures, and you've got this back and forth and back and forth. Mike's texting us scriptures yesterday. Chris is texting scriptures. Troy, Sean, Adam, everyone. Okay, maybe not Adam. We'll talk about later. <laughs> Just kidding. But speak scripture to one another. When you see each other on a Sunday morning, it's really okay to say, Taste and see that the Lord is good. You're meditating on it. You're thinking about it day and night. The Proverbs tell us a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Think of yourself as one who's just carrying apples of gold around on a platter and you want to share that with your brothers and sisters around you. Every time you gather, choose scripture over sports and weather. In your conversation. Finally, obey the scriptures. James tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. One of the reasons that I believe people fail to understand the enjoyment of God's word is because they use it very selectively, either for inspiration or to cheer them up. They go and they just kind of find one that sounds good to them. Or some people will use scripture to actually just fill themselves up with knowledge and, and puff up so that they can win all of the debates with other Christians. But how many of us are reading the scriptures, are coming to the scriptures with an aim to respond with the action of obedience? 
So I know there's a difference between meditation and doing God's word. What I'm saying here is when you come to God's word, come with an expectation that you are going to respond to God's word. And I guarantee you, if you come to, to a, a passage and it tells you to, to um, act in a certain way or to, or to extend forgiveness to someone, you say, you know what, Lord, there's somebody on my mind that you've burdened. I'm going to go to that person. I'm going to do what your word says. You are much more likely to have internalized and memorized that passage of scripture. Come to the scriptures expecting to do the scriptures. James actually talks about the absurdity of this experience of one who comes to the scriptures just to read or just to hear. He says, that person is like one who looks in the mirror, then goes away at once and forgets what he looks like. To hear the word and have no intention of doing it. Well, my favorite preacher of all time. Charles Spurgeon said this. He prayed this for his people, and I want this to be a prayer for Central Baptist Church this morning. He said, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the Word of God and get that Word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the Word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. Brothers and sisters, God's blessing is for those who internalize his word. Let's be those blessed people.